Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Robert Parlberg on Resetting the Table. Wanted to remind you about BooksOnPod.com. It's where you can go to hear all of our episodes as well as subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and plenty of other platforms. Also, if you want to give us a follow on social media, you can do so on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at BooksOnPod. Hi, this is Mark Bittman, author of Animal Vegetable Junk. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Robert Parlberg has been a professor of political science at Wellesley College and an adjunct professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's consulted the International Food Policy Research Institute, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He currently chairs the Independent Steering Committee for a global research program called Agriculture for Nutrition and Health. As an author, his books include Starved for Science, Food Politics, The United States of Excess, and his newest, Resetting the Table, straight talk about the food we grow and eat. Robert, thank you for the time today. How you doing? I'm doing fine. What was your initial goal with this book? Well, I teach a course on global food policy and politics, and everyone repeats the mantra, our food system is broken, our food system is broken. And I agree. If you look at obesity rates in the United States, 42% of American adults are clinically obese. That's a sign of a massive failure in our food system. But the suggestions I keep hearing for how to repair that failure, I think we're going to take us in the wrong direction. So I decided I had to lay this out at book length. For example, some people say, well, we ought to move toward organically grown foods, but that's not gonna solve our dietary health problems. In fact, it would make them worse because the average price of organically grown produce is more than 50% higher than for conventional produce. So if we went to organic, healthy food would cost more and people would consume less. Also, people say, well, we should go to local food. We should relocalize our food system. But that's not going to improve our diets either, because that would mean for much of the country, it would be very difficult to get fresh fruits and vegetables during the winter months. And you couldn't get healthy tropical fruits at any time if you went strictly local. And right now, we import 50% of our fruit consumption, and we import one-third of our fresh vegetable consumption. I don't want to do without those healthy foods coming from imports. If you want to make our food system healthy or keep it as healthy as it is, you're going to have to embrace a certain amount of globalization and not go back to localization. And just so people understand where you're coming from with all this, I think that it's important that I allow you to cite just what you've done in this field of work throughout your career. What are some of the different settings in which you've worked and studied food and agriculture up close and personal? Well, my dad grew up in a small family farm in Indiana, and I used to enjoy working on that farm in the summer months. So that was my first up close and personal contact. I then got a PhD in political science and international relations. And when looking for a special research niche, I discovered there weren't too many political scientists working in food and agriculture. And so I thought I'd make that my specialty. I started by looking at international political conflicts over food and agriculture, like the grain embargo that President Jimmy Carter imposed on the Soviet Union back in 1980 after they invaded Afghanistan. Then I started working on international agricultural 
trade disputes in the Uruguay round of GATT negotiations and in the WTO. Um, all the while, I took a, an increasing interest in agriculture in South Asia and in Africa and in Latin America. Now I've worked in about 16 different countries in Africa and half a dozen countries in Asia and in Latin America. I do most of my international consulting work for institutes like the International Food Policy Research Institute in Washington, D.C., or for the U.S. Agency for International Development, or for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I enjoy international travel a lot. I like farmers. It's fun to talk to farmers. They have problems that are remarkably parallel in many respects, whether it's the rainfall or the government. (laughs) (laughs) Farmers will be happy to complain about either one of those things to you in just about any part of the world. But I enjoyed it, and it's made a wonderful career for me. And I'm glad now that I'm able to write about it at some length in this new book, which is titled Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. And chapter one is titled Testing the Case Against Industrial Farming. You write that most of our food production today is industrial, although most of our farms and farmers are not. What do you mean by that? Well, if you look at the structure of farms and farming in the United States, more than 80% of our products are grown or or raised on just a small number of farms, only about 7 or 8% of our farms. Most of our farms don't produce very much food. Most of our farms are small or part-time or retirement farms, or hobby farms, or agritourism farms that uh, make money with barn weddings. It's, <laughs> it's fascinating to me that most of those who qualify as farmers are really not a part of big ag. They're an important part of rural society in the United States. Many of them were full-time farmers originally, but they sold their land or they rent their land and they kept the homestead and they're still living in the home that they grew up in, but they're no longer full-time farmers. I think it's a pretty good solution to the inevitability of farms getting larger as they become more mechanized and more automated. And it's important to understand that a lot of this technology has actually made practices safer as well as more abundant in terms of the overall output. A lot of people hear big ag and they think that farms are just doing all sorts of harms to the environment. But how has technology really helped out in this regard over the last several decades? Well, you got to go back a little ways to get adequate perspective on this. If you went back to the 1930s, In Texas and Oklahoma and elsewhere on the Southern Plains, of course, you had a devastating dust bowl. Farmers had taken low-yield agricultural techniques into the drought-prone Southern Plains, and when the rain stopped, the soil blew away. We escaped that kind of damage by increasing crop yields on lands that weren't as drought-prone, weren't as likely to be damaged by cropping. Hybrid seeds were an important part of that. We moved eventually to drip irrigation. We worked toward no-till farming in the 1970s. We eventually developed GPS systems for farm equipment that allows 
together with soil mapping, variable rate applications of everything from seeds to fertilizer to water. We came up with genetically engineered seeds that can be protected against weeds and insects with fewer chemical sprays. Now we're moving into robotics. All of these things have allowed farms to do more with less and to do more with less damage to the natural environment. Look at corn production in the United States. Corn production has increased fivefold in the United States since 1940, but we're now planting 20% fewer acres to corn than we did in 1940. That saves a lot of land for nature and for wildlife habitat. Chemical use in American agriculture is down on a per bushel basis, and in some cases it's down absolutely as well. If you look at fertilizer use, fertilizer use in the United States in agriculture peaked in about 1981, and production has increased more than 40% since then. So on a per bushel basis, fertilizer use is dropping. Pesticide use, herbicides and insecticides is about 18% lower today than it was in 1980. And that's in absolute terms. Most remarkably, if you think about insecticide use, it was insecticides that triggered Rachel Carson's concern in Silent Spring back in 1962 and launched the modern environmental movement. But in American agriculture today, insecticide use is more than 80% below where it was in the peak year of 1972. And in livestock production, we've done many of the same things. I'm not as enthusiastic because sometimes the welfare of the animals has been harmed. But in terms of environmental protection, a lot of what we've done with feed use efficiency, with new genetics, uh, with production systems that bring animals to a market weight sooner, we've reduced damage to the environment considerably. The carbon footprint of a glass of milk today is actually two-thirds smaller than it was in 1950. All these gains are hard to notice. They're very hard to notice. And in modern farming continues to do serious environmental damage. We can't rest on any laurels here. We have to continue to make more progress. But the only reason it's hard to notice is that we're producing so much more than we used to. Americans are consuming five times as much meat now as they did in 1940. If we tried to produce all that meat using the livestock practices of 1940, the environmental damage would be far greater. We're overall producing three times as much in agriculture today as we were in 1948. If we tried to triple production using traditional methods we'd end up cutting down more forests, plowing up more fragile land and destroying more wildlife habitat. So I know this, is, this goes against the narrative that modern farming is terribly destructive, but actually the opposite is true. It would be our traditional methods that would become destructive if we tried to use them to produce as much as we're producing today. We will talk a little bit more about the production later on, as well as the animal welfare. But I wanted to talk about the consumption side of our food supply. Chapter two is labeled Food Swamp Nation. The term food desert entered our vernacular in 2009 when then First Lady Michelle Obama 
brought food deserts up as part of her childhood obesity campaign. Why are food deserts not necessarily the major issue that she framed them to be? Well, the food desert usually is defined as a, a place that doesn't have adequate access to nearby supermarkets. It's where you can get fresh fruits and vegetables, healthy products. If you live in such a food desert, maybe you're forced to eat food from fast food restaurants or corner bodegas or or some other outlet for gas stations, somewhere where they only sell cheap, unhealthy junk food. This sounded like a plausible hypothesis. Maybe this was the explanation why low-income Americans, particularly those living either in remote rural areas or in hollowed out inner cities, maybe this is why their dietary outcomes were were so much worse, including outcomes for type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity. But when serious economists studied this hypothesis, they found that it was mostly bogus. When you moved a a supermarket into a neighborhood that was previously called a, a food desert, people's eating habits didn't change very much at all. It turns out that what was creating bad dietary outcomes wasn't the absence of supermarkets. It was the presence of so much cheap, convenient, energy-dense snack food and junk food. And you can get that in supermarkets. You don't have to go to a bodega to get that. It was the presence of these foods in abundance surrounding us everywhere all the time that was leading people to go toward an unhealthy diet. And the food swamp today extends almost everywhere, even at my university. You can't (laughs) go to a 4 p.m. seminar anymore without encountering a a spread with chocolate chip cookies and fudge brownies. (laughs) When I go to my pharmacy to pick up a prescription in order to get to the pharmacy counter, I have to walk through several aisles stocked with chips, soda, salted nuts, and candy. A patron at my CVS pharmacy now can try to protect his health and ruin his health in the same visit. At grocery stores, the grocery stores that we say are the solution to food deserts are also a part of the food swamp. And it's not just the highly processed packaged goods in the center of the store that have too much salt and too much sugar and and too much fat. You go to a supermarket today and you're tempted into sitting down for a meal. 95% of supermarkets today are grocerants <laughs> that will lure you to the store by offering you a place to sit and have a meal, possibly an extra meal that you don't really need. It's a constant struggle to stay away from these unhealthy foods, and most people are, are losing the battle. You're right. It is a vicious cycle. And we are surrounded by all of this hyper palatable food, including plenty of sugary, salty and or fatty snacks that really do make it easy for us to eat every waking hour of the day, Rob. While part of the burden certainly falls on the individual making the food choice, there is blame to go around, including the overall system, the way things are set up. Are companies that are responsible for making our food, especially these processed packaged goods, are they literally aiming? to make these foods more addictive for us? Sure. (laughs) That's their goal. In order to make food that they know we will crave, 
They do several things. First, they make them, as you said, they're ultra-processed, they're hyper-palatable. You barely have to chew. They go down so fast that you fill your stomach so quickly, stomach doesn't have time to tell the brain it's full. There was a wonderful experiment that was reported just two years ago. They took two diets made up of exactly the same foods, but one diet, it was ultra-processed, the other diet was minimally processed. Same foods, same nutrient content, same taste. And those that ate the ultra-processed foods consumed something like 500 calories more per day and gained weight. They said, no, it didn't taste any better, but it turns out they were just eating faster. So the ultra-processed foods are a serious problem. But also the companies that make these foods add plenty of sugar and they know that added sugars will spike your insulin and that will store the calories in your fat and you'll gain weight. Products with extra sugars don't satisfy. You're not satiated. You're hungry much too soon. If you get products with natural sugars, if you eat an orange, that problem doesn't occur. But added sugars will make you hungry again very soon. But the final trick is to formulate the foods with just the right combination of sugar, fat, texture, salt, color. They formulate these products so that when they hit the back of your tongue, they hit what the industry calls a bliss point. And the reward system in your brain is triggered to remember that wonderful sensation. It's a dopamine high. And you learn to associate that with the food that you just ate. And if you encounter an advertisement for that food later, it will trigger a craving for that food. I'm not sure the companies fully understand the biology and the psychology of all this, but they test their products heavily and make sure that this bliss point is targeted. Now, not everybody's vulnerable to this kind of targeting. Large numbers of consumers don't pay any attention to the ads, don't consume any of these foods and aren't dragged into the swamp. And a lot of people would consume unhealthy foods, whether they were carefully formulated to hit a bliss point or not. But the people that are vulnerable are the people in the so-called movable middle who can be dragged toward unhealthy food consumption by uh, encountering the combination of these carefully formulated foods and the heavy advertising push for these foods. Are there any groups that these food companies specifically aim their advertising at with a lot of these junk foods? Yeah, a disproportionate share of the ads go to minority children, black children in particular. If you look at the frequency of ads for junk foods on programs that attract a young African-American audience, it'll be much higher. Hmm. They know where the movable middle is, and they're good at targeting them. It's very sad to hear. And while the food companies will say that they offer healthy alternatives, and they aren't necessarily holding that figurative gun to people's heads to eat the junk that they sell, there still has to be a way that we can hold them a little bit more accountable for this obesity crisis. Is there an obvious solution to holding them more accountable, in your opinion? Yeah, I think there is. And it's not just accountability. They actually need help. 
in doing what they've known instinctively they ought to be doing for quite some time. They would like to be able to hold on to their market share with products that are healthier than the ones they're now selling. But the competition in the marketplace among food companies makes that very difficult. A food company brings out a product, a yogurt product that doesn't have as much added sugar, they're going to lose market share to YoPlay and stock values will go down and, and the management will be fired. They feel trapped in a way by the fierce competition in the marketplace. And the way to help them out of that trap is to, uh, I'm going to sound like the food police here, <laughs> to help them out of that trap is for government policies to establish a common standard across the industry so that all can up their game without having to worry about losing out to the competition. You could do several things. You could impose excise taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages. All beverage companies would face the same penalty. They wouldn't lose out to a competitor because they'd all be under added pressure from that excise tax. You could require new nutrition labeling standards, not a a nutrition facts panel on the side of the box that's all numbers and fine print, but something like they have in the UK, something, a front of package nutrition guidance label, complete with symbols, colored symbols like traffic lights, red, yellow, green, or you could put restrictions on the advertisement of junk foods to children on Saturday morning TV programs. Now, we know these things work because they're widely adopted in other countries. There are 18 countries in Europe that have adopted at least one of these policies, and many have adopted more than one. And obesity rates on the continent of Europe are only half as high as in the United States. In the United States, at the federal level, we've not adopted any of these policies. We're moving slowly toward some excise taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages at the municipal level, city by city. Philadelphia did it. Seattle did it. San Francisco did it. But uh, at the federal level and the state level, that's still a non-starter. So I think the companies need help. And I would try to present it to them that way to get their acquiescence. They, they know. They know that they're under the gun. They know that they're being heavily criticized for the products that they put on the shelf. And if only they could dampen the competition, the competitive pressure they feel, they would, I think, be eager to uh, clean up their act. I, for one, am a huge fan of color coding the nutritional labels, which I read about for the first time in this book. You know, empowering the consumer to have that information at their fingertips is one thing, but to make it even simpler, I think would be greatly beneficial, much like you talk about uh, elsewhere outside of the United States. Rob, what does Silly Putty have to do with McDonald's fries? Oh, well, one of the ingredients in Silly Putty is an ingredient used in cooking McDonald's fries. I'm not sure that it's particularly dangerous, but it captures the, uh, <laughs> uh, the industry's inventiveness when it comes to uh, uh, reducing uh, the cost of fast food preparation. Most fast food preparation does not occur on scene. Most of it is prepared elsewhere, and the restaurant will heat and serve. McDonald's used to cook its own fries on the scene, but they don't do that anymore. It's much cheaper to do it all in Idaho. 
It's a common gripe that hyperpalatable junk food is much cheaper than the healthy options. Do you agree with that sentiment? It is cheap, but it's no cheaper than the healthy options. It's uh, fascinating to me that junk food and perfectly healthy food are both cheap in America, both cheaper than ever before. And the price has been coming down for both at roughly the same rate. We sometimes don't notice this. We say, oh, well, fresh fruits and vegetables are more expensive than unhealthy food. But if you control for things like packaging or seasonality, fresh fruits and vegetables have been coming down in price just as rapidly as ice cream and and chocolate chip cookies. The U.S. Department of Agriculture calculates what it calls the cost of a thrifty food plan. They come up with a food plan for a family of four that satisfies all of the dietary guidelines put out by the federal government. And you can satisfy all those guidelines at a cost of only about $2 a meal, which is pretty affordable. So why don't more Americans follow that thrifty food plan? Well, the catch is that you can't just put it in the microwave. (laughs) Uh, You have to cook. (laughs) You have to take unprocessed foods that you get in the grocery store and peel them and chop them and bake them and fry them. And then you have to clean up. (laughs) And all of this is a time cost, an inconvenience cost that large numbers of consumers don't want to pay. And in some cases, it's completely understandable. If you're a single parent with school-aged kids, and if you're working, what do you do on your way home? Do you stop at the supermarket and buy a lot of unprocessed products so you can start cooking when you get home? Or do you stop at KFC and get a bucket of chicken? For people who work hard and have a lot of responsibilities and don't have unlimited time, it's not the dollar cost that drives their behavior. It's quite often the, uh, the time cost or the convenience. But it's also the taste. I mean, let's face it. Those food scientists at KFC know how to make it more attractive to have a piece of chicken with just the right secret batter (laughs) than to cook up broccoli. Makes a lot of sense. Chapter three is the limits of local food. Are we pretty liberal with our definition of local when talking about locally sourced food? Well, we don't have any one definition, of course. The original thought was, well, it can be local if it's grown within a 100-mile radius of the final consumer. But the U.S. Department of Agriculture said, no, uh, that's a little too constricted. We'd like things to be classified local if they were either within the same state or within a 400-mile radius. Now, big states like Texas, I mean, how far across is the state of Texas? More than 400 miles, I suspect. Oh, from Houston to El Paso, I think it spans a third of the country. Okay, well, if it's grown in in the western half of the state, in consuming the eastern half of the state, it can be still local, according to the USDA definition. Of course, California is even worse. Whole Foods Market has its own definition based upon time in transit. So we don't have any one definition for local. The U.S. Department of Agriculture does, however, calculate what it calls direct sales from farms. So this would be 
farm products that are sold directly to consumers at farmers markets or directly to consumers at community supported agriculture, CSA outlets, or sold directly to schools or restaurants, farm to table, or sold through food hubs that don't operate on the supermarket grid. So when they look at all of those sales together, you'd be astonished to learn that they make up only about 1% of all farm sales in the United States. Same goes for organic too, by the way. Yeah, that's right. If you look at all organically grown products, it's only about 2% of farm sales. And organically certified cropland is only about 1% of all cropland in the United States. And this is discouraging to people who've been pushing hard for local and organic food for the last several decades. It just isn't scaling up. And part of my task in this book, and once again, I got to remind people of the title, it's called Resetting the Table. (laughs) Straight talk about the food we grow and eat. One of my tasks in this book is to explain why these popular alternatives aren't scaling up in the marketplace. And speaking of organic, chapter four is titled The Panic for Organic. How did the idea of organic farming come to be? It's interesting. It didn't originate as a backlash against pesticides. It originated almost 100 years ago as a backlash against synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. We didn't have synthetic nitrogen fertilizer before about 1910. And it was welcomed by farmers, of course. It boosted their yields dramatically. It reduced the labor cost of spreading manure and composting animal manure. But there were philosophers, actually, vitalist philosophers, including Rudolf Steiner in Austria, who had a belief system that said, you can't nurture living things from synthetic man-made products. You can synthesize nitrogen from the atmosphere, but it's not going to be as good for the plants as nitrogen from animal manure. And so he started a movement that he called biodynamic farming, life force farming. And it spread considerably at the time in Austria, in nearby Germany, and in England. It was eventually supplanted by what we today call organic farming, a term coined in England and then brought to the United States by J.I. Rodale in the 1940s. But the concept was the same. Stay away from synthetic chemicals. Imitate nature's way of replenishing soil nutrients with animal manure. And uh, that was the the original vision. Of course, it didn't scale up because uh, the farmers didn't want lower yields and they didn't want more labor time. It was something that was heavily embraced by hobby gardeners and by uh, English aristocrats, including today, Prince Charles, of course, who has an all-organic farm. (laughs) But the organic idea didn't really scale up until until the 1990s because of a series of scares over health risks surrounding pesticide residues on foods. That's when, uh, I mean, there was a sensational story about a chemical ALAR on apples that the CBS program 60 Minutes described as the most dangerous chemical in our food today. It brought a panic about pesticide residues on foods. And 
when people discovered that organic foods didn't have any synthetic pesticides, of course, they use naturally occurring pesticides that are also toxic, but no synthetic pesticides, consumers said, oh, I want organic products. And at that point, the organic industry, especially the, the big growers out in California, said, okay, we're going to need a federal standard. We're going to need a certification system so that we can uh, cash in on this preference for organic, so that we can get a price premium for the organic goods that we're going to grow. And, and we passed the, the National Organic Program Act and created an organic standard. And once the labels were, were there, yes, price premiums emerged in the marketplace. The only disappointment to some traditional organic growers was that the organic standard didn't place any restriction on the size of the farm that could be certified organic. So you had farms in California that were originally quite small that cashed in on the organic price premiums and became very large. Earthbound Farms now manages 50,000 acres. Most of our organic products on the market today don't come from small, local, diversified farms. Most come from farms that are almost indistinguishable from conventional farms in their specialization and in their industrial scale. There are, well, you probably know this, there are organic dairy farms in Texas with 18,000 cows. There are organic egg farms in Michigan with 180,000 birds in each building. There's no restriction in the organic rule against this kind of size, nor is there any restriction against some slightly dubious practices. Organic farmers, in order to control weeds, they can't use synthetic herbicides, but they can use gas-powered flamethrowers, and they can spread down non-biodegradable mulch that has to be taken to a landfill. It's a rule that I think has betrayed the original vision of organic, and it, it's frustrating to those that are holding on to that original vision, led by the Cornucopia Institute, that campaigns against what they call factory organic milk. Whether we're talking about organic or non-organic foods, Rob, has the nutritional density of our produce, of our fruits and vegetables, gone down over time? And if so, why? It's gone down over time. Yeah, the breeders that provide seeds to our horticultural producers have bred these new varieties for disease resistance, for pest resistance, for size, for durability, for shelf life, but they really haven't focused on nutrition or even flavor. And flavor and nutrition often go together. But I don't think that this is a major cause of poor nutrition in the United States today. The, and it certainly isn't a reason to switch to local or to organic varieties of these same plants. A broccoli plant with low nutrient density isn't any better if it's grown locally rather than at a distance. And organically grown products, the advocates sometimes say that they have greater nutrient density, but there isn't good scientific evidence to back that up. In some cases, they do have more vitamins and minerals, but it's not medically significant. For example, if you look at organic milk, 
it does have 50% more beta carotene than conventional milk. But conventional milk has so little beta carotene that uh, 50% of almost nothing is still almost nothing. And there's no <laughs> medical advantage to going for organic milk. Chapter six is rejecting biotech food. How much of our staple food crops like wheat, rice, and potato, as well as most of the fruits and veggies that we buy in the grocery store are genetically modified organisms or GMOs? Zero. Zero. Well, no wheat, no rice, no potatoes for direct human consumption. In the fruits and vegetables category, Yes, papaya from Hawaii are GMO. Yes, we have some summer squash that are GMO, but almost all fruits and vegetables in the marketplace are, are non-GMO. And we don't have any GMO animals or animal products in the marketplace yet either. It might surprise my readers to learn that almost all of the GMO crops grown in the United States, and that would be primarily corn, and soybeans, and cotton, and canola. Almost all of these things are grown either as industrial products. A lot of the corn, more than a third of our corn goes to auto fuel as ethanol, or industrial products, that's what the cotton goes for. Or they're grown mostly for animal feed. That's what a lot of the corn goes for. Or they're grown not to be consumed directly, but as a source of oil, soybeans or canola for staple foods for direct human consumption just really aren't being grown in GMO form practically anywhere. The opponents of GMOs have actually won an astonishing victory over a technology that they don't like and that they campaigned against. Everyone thinks that the big biotech companies are Goliaths out there. But just like in the biblical story, in this case, the Davids uh, have slain the Goliath and uh, GMO foods for direct human consumption are practically non-existent. At the end of this chapter, you do write that, quote, we don't trust ourselves to use this power of crop and farm animal biotechnology responsibly. Do you trust us to do so? Uh, I'm more trusting than, <laughs> than, than those that campaign against this technology. For consistency purposes, if we don't trust ourselves to use either recombinant DNA to improve crop seeds or to use uh, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing techniques to improve crop seeds, then we should not be using something that we use all the time, hmm. which is inducing mutations. It's called mutagenesis, mutation breeding. We use radiation and chemicals to trigger in totally unpredictable mutations in the genetics of crops. There's no rule against that. We should be more frightened of that than we are of things that we can pretty close to control, like CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, for example. And that happened in 2012, correct? Where we figured out the ability to so precisely edit the yeah. genetics of vegetation? Yeah, CRISPR's been around in the laboratory since 2000 and 12, and products developed using CRISPR came on to the market in the United States a year or two ago, mostly cooking oils and things of that kind. But it's not clear that these products are going to spread much farther. 
than the transgenic GMO products. Because in Europe now, the European court has determined that gene edited products should be regulated as though they were transgenic GMOs. And that means they'll be under a stifling blanket of regulations and restrictions. They'll have to be case-by-case approval of new applications. There will have to be uh, careful tracing of these products through the commercial marketplace. The operators in the marketplace will have to keep an audit trail, a record for five years of every product that, that they acquired and from whom and where it went and so that they could presumably be removed overnight from the marketplace if some horrible mistake was discovered. These are the regulations that drove GMO foods out of the marketplace in Europe years ago. And if these regulations are not just applied in Europe, but extended beyond Europe to Africa or to Asia, then uh, gene-edited CRISPR crops might also disappear from the market. We don't know if that'll happen yet. There's an outside chance that the European Union will rewrite its GMO directive to make it more acceptable for the European court to lift the GMO blanket of regulations from this new technology. But that hasn't happened yet. Scientists in Europe are very eager for that to happen, but they're not calling the shots. Gotcha. Chapter 7 brings us to livestock welfare. It's titled The Fate of Farm Animals. Confining animals, as you talked about a little bit earlier in this conversation, is more efficient for labor. But is that trade-off worth the potential degradation of the animal's well-being and the resulting food products? Well, it remains how far you go with the confinement. The United States has gone, in my view, too far by putting egg-laying hens in small battery cages. This frustrates all of their instincts. They can't perch. They can't flap their wings. They're in excessive confinement. One economist in Oklahoma concluded that they had a negative quality of life and that they'd be better off dead. They'd be better off euthanized. I think we need larger cages uh, for these hens at the least. Likewise, for pregnant sows, many are still being kept in gestation crates, they're called, that are so small that the animals can't turn around. We know that if they're given freedom to turn around, they'll do it 74 times a day. To frustrate that urge, simply to make them more manageable, is, I think, it's a violation of the ethical treatment that these sentient beings deserve. I mean, pigs are very intelligent animals more intelligent than the dogs and cats that we lavish such care on in our homes. And now we're treating them as though they weren't sentient beings in some of our livestock operations. So I criticize the livestock industry for having gone too far here. But I don't join those who say we should go back to traditional pasture and barnyard methods. I don't think we should try to raise these animals outdoors the way we used to. Outdoors is not a wonderful place for farm animals. In the cold winter months, it's uncomfortable. There are diseases and parasites. There are predators. If you give most farm animals a choice of being outdoors or being indoors, they'll actually prefer indoors. They feel safer. The solution I like is the one that the European Union has moved toward 
And that is, here I am again, praising the regulatory systems of the European <laughs> Sorry for that. But about 15 years ago, the European Union upgraded its animal welfare standards considerably. They required for animals raised indoors more space, more light, less noise, continuous solid floor space for lying down and sleeping, not just slatted floors. And it's interesting, for pigs, they respect the intelligence of these animals and their curiosity. And, and they required for pigs that they be given objects they can manipulate and root around with, toys in effect. Is that the example that you cited from the Netherlands? Yes. Yeah, that's right. It's a European Union-wide regulation. Ah. Germany briefly had a requirement. I don't know if it's still there that hog farmers have to make eye contact with their individual animals a minimum number of minutes every week. The European Union has not put these animals outside. They don't want to do that. The European Union knows that for food safety and animal safety, they're much better inside biosecure barns. You mentioned the Netherlands. The Netherlands just last spring issued an edict that all poultry had to be brought indoors. That was after an outbreak of avian flu in Germany. So I think we can keep the animals in a biosecure facility, maintain the productivity of our livestock systems, and also improve their welfare by giving them more enrichment, more space, better light, and less noise. Apologies ahead of time for the morbidity of this next question, but it's important for this part of the conversation. What's the best way to kill an animal? It should be instantaneous, <laughs> and it should be as completely unanticipated as possible. To keep the cortisol from releasing basically throughout the animal? Yeah. We're, we're not just talking about the welfare of the animal here. We're talking about the quality of the meat. Right. An animal goes to slaughter under stress, the quality of the meat is damaged. It will drip water when the animal is butchered. So it's better for the animal and better for the meat consumer if the slaughter process is not just quick, but unanticipated. I talked to a veterinarian in Kenya who follows the practices of African tribes in managing and in killing and in butchering their animals. And she was a great admirer of what they did with pigs. She noticed that these tribesmen would let the pigs wander about in a pen freely with no restriction. She would say they're there with their friends and a skilled tribesman will step into the pen with a spear, pick out his pig, and then in a quick single blow, bang the spear directly into the heart of the pig and it falls over dead. So one minute it was happy walking around with its friends, the next minute it's dead. And she said, this is vastly superior to the high-tech methods used in the United States. Yes, by the time our animals get to the killing floor, they'll be stunned and they'll be humanely killed. That's wonderful. But to get there, they have to experience a terrifying ride in a noisy truck and they have to be kept then in a completely unfamiliar place overnight before they finally make it to the killing floor. She thinks that we underestimate the trauma that animals go through 
prior to their slaughter. She thinks that their death is uh, anything but unanticipated. They know there's something bad going on, (laughs) and she would like to relieve them of that. And we'll certainly have that ESP. Chapter 8 is the brave new future of food. We certainly consume too much food, especially here in the United States. Are we also producing too much food, Rob? Well, that's a tough question to ask because a lot of our food is exported to consumers elsewhere, including some consumers that may not be consuming too much food. I don't mind producing for export to countries that are not yet over-consuming meat products, but uh, here in the United States, we do consume too much meat. As I said, I think earlier, Americans consume five times as much meat as we did in 1940, and too much of that is red meat and processed meat, which not only brings human health risks, but also emits greenhouse gases that can destabilize the climate. I would like to see us cut back on per capita consumption of especially red meats and processed meats. And that would allow us then to also reduce our production of these products. And the production of these products does consume environmental resources and does contribute to destabilizing greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. In the epilogue, you offer up some straight talk to commercial farmers. Why do commercial farmers stay so silent when our government proposes healthy eating initiatives? And is there a way to get them more on board with this process? Well, I'm going to be fascinated to get reactions to this epilogue because most of my book is quite charitable toward the practices of modern farmers, especially modern crop farmers. I criticize food companies. I criticize restaurant chains. I criticize retailers. I criticize a lot of advocacy organizations. But in my epilogue, I say, hey, wait a minute. Commercial farmers have to do some rethinking as well. I'm not so opposed to the farming methods they use, but I don't like their political strategy, which is to remain in a tight alliance with the food manufacturing companies. Of course, the food manufacturing companies buy their products, so I suppose they feel like these are natural allies, but the food companies are taking advantage of our commercial farmers. They're hiding behind the halo, the political halo that farmers have usually had in the past. And as the food companies suffer a declining reputation under onslaughts from the new good food movement, I think that's going to spill over onto the farmers unless the farmers can create some political space between themselves and the food companies. The farmers should not want to be represented to the country by the food companies. The food companies take perfectly healthy products grown on America's farms and add too much sugar, add too much salt, add too much fat, process them too much, and then advertise them relentlessly to consumers who will suffer adverse health consequences. I would like to see commercial farmers strike out and start joining with the public health community, advocating for more dietary health. I would have liked to see commercial farmers support Michelle Obama's Let's Move program back in 2009. I would like to see commercial farmers advocate for taking sugar-sweetened beverages out of eligibility under the SNAP program. You wouldn't reduce the size of the SNAP benefit by one penny, 
but you would ensure that government money wasn't going to fuel dangerous excess consumption of a food product that uh, mostly just produces metabolic imbalance. Of course, if you ask farmers, why aren't you doing that? They'll say, well, that would mean behaving like Democrats. (laughs) I know from my own family background that if you're raised in a family that's been three or four or five generation Republican, uh, you're not going to want to be seen with Democrats. Democrats are associated with things that farmers don't like. And sometimes it's correct. They're associated with tight environmental regulations that get in the way of some farm practices. They're associated with restrictions on international trade, although it was President Trump who uh, took over that mantle during his administration. Farmers like trade and they don't like environmental regulations. And so they've traditionally not liked Democrats. I think they have to get over some of that and realize that if they can be seen advocating for dietary health rather than just abundance, they'll be able to protect themselves a little better from the attacks that the good food movement is bringing their way. Much like with every other topic in this book, I think you just stated a logical and rational case there, and I do appreciate that. Robert Parlberg has been a professor of political science at Wellesley College and adjunct professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's consulted the International Food Policy Research Institute, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He currently chairs the Independent Steering Committee for a global research program called Agriculture for Nutrition and Health. As an author, his books include Starved for Science, Food Politics, The United States of Excess, and his newest, Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. Rob, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very informative book. Well, Trey, you know, uh, you're the first person I've encountered who's read the book with this much care, and I certainly appreciate that. Thank you very much for including me. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder to go to booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.